Okay, Leviticus 10, 1 through 15. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censure and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them to their cots out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewall the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your sons' due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place." you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever as the Lord has commanded. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I preach this morning, I wanted to give an update on two of our daughter churches and one in process and then have a pastoral prayer uh, on that. So um, as many of you know, we have two churches that we have helped plant, one called Resurrection Life Church, which is in the Holly Springs Apex area, and then a second church called Resurrection Life, which is up Capitol Boulevard in Northeast Raleigh. And these are, just so you understand kind of why we're doing this uh, and what, what, what's happening, we, we really believe that to be faithful as a congregation is not to grow our church larger, but to continually be in a process of sending. And the healthiest way that our church can exist is like being a stream rather than being a pond. You know, you know a pond has water flowing in, and it sits there, and it's warm, and green things grow on the surface of the water, and weird fish grow in ponds, 
Um, but streams, that's where you go fly fishing because that's where healthy fish are and healthy things are. When water is coming in and going out. And so we believe a, a key part of our discipleship strategy for a church is sending out, sending out our best and doing so on a regular basis. We have a vision to plant 10 churches over the next 20 years. Uh, we've started planting these two, and we are just getting going. Our third church plant, uh, we've already called uh, Russell McCutcheon. He's going to move here this summer from Memphis and plant somewhere in the East Raleigh, Nightdale area along that corridor. We're really excited about him as well. And one of our, our key things is continually sending. We want to encourage you, if you drive past these locations on a Sunday coming in, or if you have any desire of like, wow, you know, I'm kind of extra here. Um, these church plants really need you. And they need your encouragement. They need you to show up every once in a while and just encourage them. Uh, they need your prayers. And they need you to go. And, and so if you're sitting in our congregation, it is very likely over the next 20 years you're going to be asked to go somewhere. And that's a loving thing. It's part of our discipleship plan. So we ask you to be praying for those works. I'm going to lead us in prayer now for Mark Kinech and his family at Resurrection Life and Dwayne Davis and his family at Renewal, and then Russell and Toya McCutcheon. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have as a congregation to send our best. And we thank you, Father, that, Lord, you are Lord of your church. And your church was never meant to be an institution. It was always meant to be more than that. It was meant to be a living organism. And Lord, we, we pray as we believe that church planting is the best way to reach our city and to reach people who right now don't know you or are not part of your people. And we pray, Father, that you would encourage and increase the work of Resurrection Life in Holly Springs and Apex. We pray, Father, for your work through uh, the, the church renewal and Dwayne Davis and his leadership and his team there in Northeast Raleigh. We pray, Father, that you would encourage them and increase them. And we pray, Father, for Russell and Toya as they look to come as they're in a preparation phase to move from Memphis this summer. We pray, Father, that you would prepare them for that work. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be a part of your kingdom building in this way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as we turn to God's Word, I know that this may be one of the top ten disturbing, most disturbing passages in all the Old Testament. Um, and, you know, sometimes when I am preparing to preach and I hit a really tough passage like this, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to see what the big dogs do with this passage. So I'll, I'll look up like what a, what a really famous pa other pastors do with Leviticus and particularly Leviticus 10. And here's what I found is the big dogs don't preach Leviticus. <laughs> and they especially when they do, they skip over chapter 10. Not helpful to me. Um, now, to be fair, when I'm done today, you may think I should have skipped over Leviticus 10 and that this was crazy time, but uh, I think skipping this is a big mistake. And as I've sort of spent time in this passage, this is actually one of my favorite passages in Leviticus. Did I say that right? Did, favorite. Yeah, favorite. Um, so here's the fascinating thing about this chapter. This is the only narrative in a book which is pretty much a priestly manual. It, to give you an analogy, it would be like 
you picked up the U.S. Constitution, and after the Bill of Rights, the writers of this document put in a story about John Adams and his kids, and then you go back to the regular Constitution. And if that were the case, we would want to pay a lot of attention to that story. We would say, man, if this is the only story, and this is in the middle of this, such an important document, this must be really important. This must really matter. You'd probably pay attention. So this odd story, I think it's extremely important for us to understand. So let me kind of set the stage. If you were not here last week or this is your first uh, ride with us through Leviticus, let me kind of explain where we've been. Um, there, there's a ton of buildup to this moment. As I said last week, chapter 8, we just finished, is all about the ordination of the priests. And this is what I did last week. This is sort of part two of last week's sermon anyway, so you need to know this. Um, chapter 8 outlines the ordination of priests, and there are seven steps. There are seven parts of the ordination process for these priests. And we've said, hey, seven, that's the number in the Old Testament of completion because in how many days did God create the world? Seven. Good, you guys are in with me. Seven days, God completes His work of creation. So the eighth day is the beginning of the new world working and doing what it's supposed to do. And that is paralleled here in Leviticus. There are seven days of preparation and ordination for the priests. And then chapter 9 begins, and on the eighth day, they begin to do the things. The priests begin to do the priest things. And this is what we said last week. God's intention all along was not for there to be a, a few guys in robes with beards who are priests, but Exodus tells us all of God's people were to be priests. But in order for there to be a, all of God's people to be priests, there had to be some priests who show the people how you live as a priest, what it means to live as God's people in this new world order that he's creating. Remember, these people had been slaves for 400 years, and God is drawing them out and saying, you're going to be a special people for me. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, and I'm going to show you a new way of being in the world. I'm going to show you a new ordering of how humanity is going to function. And these priests are demonstrating. It's, it's a performance, high-level performance art, showing them this is how it's going to be. This is the new way, and they start doing the sacrifices. So chapter 9 ends with this incredible moment of optimism and excitement and joy. The people are finally seeing the priests. They're doing the things, and, and this is what it says. And Moses and Aaron, this is the end of chapter 9, went to the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And everybody's like, "Woo!" You know, this is, this is, it's finally happening. And the next verse is tragedy. I mean, the very next verse. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. These two brand new, newly minted priests, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they, they go and they offer what is simply called here strange fire. In Hebrew, that's zor zewar. I love that. Zor zewar. You know, strange, unauthorized fire. They offer this. Clearly, something is not right. And instead of the fire, like it did in chapter 9, coming out from the Lord and consuming the sacrifice this time, man, this time, the fire from the Lord comes out and consumes the young men. 
they're instantly killed. I mean, do you know what it's like to go from a moment of just lofty expectations about the future and in a moment of tragedy, everything is gone? Do you know what that feels like? Have you experienced that before? When I was a teenager, my one driving ambition in my life for my future was to become an astronaut. I know, like lots of kids want to be, but I really wanted to be an astronaut. My mom's best friend from high school is a woman named Ray Seddon, who was a mission specialist uh, in the space shuttle, and she married a guy named Hoot Gibson, who is a pilot for the space shuttle. Between them, they had six shuttle launches. We drove down to Cape Canaveral and watched them lift off. Ray Seddon came to my high school when I was a freshman in high school and gave a talk, and man, I was all about this. I went to space camp twice, (laughs) right? This was not a like, hey, fun idea for me. And then, and then January 28th, 1986 happened. Do y'all remember what happened January 28th, 1986? I remember really well. That was the day that the Challenger, 73 seconds after liftoff, exploded and killed all five astronauts on board and my dreams. Do you know what it's like to go from like lofty expectations to in a moment of tragedy, we're done? And that's what we're in in chapter 10. I mean, the rest of this chapter is pretty much post-trauma recovery. And, and, you know, Aaron makes his nephews, and Moses makes these, he makes his nephews go carry the bodies. I mean, the word there, just the bodies out of the, the tabernacle because you can't have a dead body in the tabernacle. It defiles it. And Moses says, you guys have the oil on you. You can't leave. You can't grieve. You got to finish the job. And he, he drafts a couple more of Aaron's sons and gives them the instructions over again. And the part we didn't read, actually later on, Moses and Aaron get into it, an argument about this. And if you're like, what? <laughs> you're in good company, right? Um, it's totally understandable. So let, let's talk, what happened here? Why did this one implode? Why did this one blow up 73 seconds after takeoff? Let's look at this. I need to ask some harder questions. What's the strange fire? Uh, what did they do so bad? Why did God have to kill them? Um, is there anything good in this passage for us this morning? Is there anything good here? See, why, what is, why the strange fire? So these two men take their censers. I want you to picture a long stick with a, kind of like a fire bucket at the end. This was the way that they used, uh, a, a tool that they used to bring the fire to a sacrifice and it would be full of coals. And they, they do something with this and how they, they, they handle the fire. It's not explicit in the text. And they do something here that is not right. And there is unauthorized in some way. So here's some, here's some ideas because um, the text isn't explicit. So a lot of people smarter than me have offered different options. Uh, one theory about this is that the language here is they, they went and pulled the bodies out of the front of the sanctuary. That is, in, in Hebrew, it's the holy place. So one idea is that this is sort of a power move by these young men. They're like, they're not high priests, but they're like, you know, they heard the high priest gets to go in there once a year and offer fire. I can do that. 
And so they go into the holy place, the most holy place, and they offer fire there, and they're not supposed to be in there. So that theory, number one. Number two, uh, some scholars think that this has to do with the, the, actually the way that they offered fire has to do with the traditions uh, and the practices of the neighboring countries around them. That they were somehow offering fire in a way mixed in with their coals, uh, some, something they added that was just like their neighbors next door, the pagans, and they did it the wrong way. Um, some, some point to uh, verses 8 through 11 where it talks about wine and the admonition about not drinking on the job. You don't drink on the job when you're a priest. Uh, that, Moses like, lays that out for them. And so something like well, neighboring countries in pagan practices, drinking was part of, drinking some alcoholic beverage was some part of the sacrifice. And so they do that, and that's why they're, they're wiped out. But what's clear is there's a covenant that God has established, and they've broken it. And, and a covenant in like the Mosaic term is kind of like a, a wedding ketubah, like a, a wedding uh, practice standard of statement of like, well, this is what I'm going to do, this is what you're going to do, and somehow they've broken it. So we don't know what's so strange about the strange fire. We, we don't know, but there, these are just a few options. But the big idea is this is a mess before this whole thing even really gets going. Do you see that? Like before the ship can really even get out of the dock and make its first maiden voyage, it's sinking. Uh, before the film debuts at the box office in the pre-screening, people are like, that's not going to work. That storyline falls apart. Um, in the, the, the family, the first moments of the family, it's already a mess. And th- you need to know this. Like, this is one of the main things I want to highlight is like reading through this priestly manual in Leviticus and it doesn't work. The first day, it doesn't work. The very first day. So um, I know that this passage is hard for us. This sounds extreme. Like, wait, they died? Like not of accidental, like somebody dropped the bucket of fire on the gasoline. No, like the fire comes out from God and destroys them. What is the big deal? I mean, so they messed up the fire. It was their first day at work. Everybody messes something on the first day at work. So you have to realize, let's just take a step back from this. You have to realize how much is at stake in what is being described here. How very much is at stake. This isn't like observing some kind of empty rituals that have no significance. This isn't... um, This isn't just like, hey, we have some theoretical ideas about ways we can do this God thing. This is about the distinctions, making distinctions in the very small things in the way that God has prescribed. So if you've ever been in the military, if you've ever been in the military, you know that the military doesn't just teach you how to be a soldier. It teaches you how to make a bed and how to iron a shirt. Because what is the military doing but saying, we need to reform you as a person And from the very moment you wake up in the day, everything matters. All the details matter. Every bit of it. So strange fire, these these sacrifices, these rituals are not some empty intellectual exercise of like, hey, let's, let's see how this one works. No, this is about life and death. This is about slavery and freedom. This is about perishing and survival. And this is about these people never becoming slaves again. And then learning to do life in a completely new way. Now, I want you to, those of you who are in recovery, 
or know someone who is in recovery from alcohol, from another substance, understand this. You know, somebody's in recovery, you say to them, hey, what's the big deal? You know, it's just, an, uh, just a drink. No, it is not just, an, uh, just a drink, right? No, my wife is one drink away from being in complete, complete ruin again, right? It is never just about one drink. You're fooling yourself, you know. Or think about single mom working really hard to get out, of, get above the poverty line with her kids, and her payroll, her company's payroll service messes up her paycheck um, by a few hundred dollars, and they say to her, "Hey, don't worry, we'll make it up in your next paycheck." And she's upset. And they're like, what's the big deal? It's just $100. No, it's not. I am trying to make it. This is the difference for me between making it and not making it, right? So you can hear this in verse 3, this insistence right here where um, Moses speaks to him. And he says, this is what the Lord says. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified before uh, all the people. I will be glorified. And Aaron's like, doesn't say anything. Because what is Moses saying? Like, God is holy, God is a holy God. And the, the young priests, these knuckleheads, they, they fail to treat God as God, and they've treated God like us, like another one of us. And remember, chapters 8 and 9 before this are about like, Moses hears what God says. Moses does what God says. I mean, it's like said seven times, that little phrase. It's a setup for this because they, they did not listen to the details. Beginning at chapter 10, when they mess with the fire, they approach their job here with a lax, casual indifference. Uh, on, they handle the plutonium with bare hands. And big surprise, they die because of this. These rituals are about cr new creation, about making distinctions. It's, it's, in fact, that, ver that word um, here in verse 10, verse 10, about distinctions, this is the important word that you're going to hear over and over. You're just distinguished between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. This is going to be repeated in the next couple chapters. We're going to talk all about making distinctions in the small things. This is critical because God is saying, like, this is what I do. You go back to the creation story in the first chapter of Genesis, and what do you have? You have a God who makes distinctions. You have a God who distinguishes between light and dark, between land and, and sea, between sea and sky. And he, he, said, he creates then according to its kinds. And so here's a God who says, you know, trees are different from rocks, are different from clouds, are different from dogs. There's, there, you're called to make distinctions. And so when these priests make the fire, but they don't make the distinctions, they put this whole thing in jeopardy. This whole new thing that God is, is starting to do, creating a whole new world. And so from the very beginning, I mean, opening day of the season, the whole thing falls apart. Opening day. See, this is so unique. I, I mean, I, I know that this may sound like really, really weird to us. But you read this story, this is a unique story in all of ancient Near Eastern literature. Nobody tells stories like this. Did any of you ever have to read... Um, okay, this is Nerd Portfolio number two. I was, I was a big Latin person in high school and in the Latin club, okay? But um, so did any of y'all ever have to read um, the Aeneid, the Iliad, the Odyssey, any of these? Okay, so if, if you ever read any of these things, you read about, you know, Hector and Achilles and Ulysses and all these heroes, they're never failure stories. 
They're always hero stories, but not this. This is from the very first day failure. They muck it up from the very beginning. And see, this points to us something. This tells us that you have to look. That this priesthood was never going to work. This is not the priest we need. This whole system. I mean, from the very first verse, it doesn't work. These men, Nadab, Abihu, even Aaron, they needed a priest. That's what we see from this passage. They needed someone, they needed someone to represent them. Remember what I said last week about what a job of a priest is. The job of the priest is to stand with a foot in two worlds. Like the world that is in reality of like who you are and what you're like and what I'm like, and then another foot in the world of what could be. And they're like, this is what God's making. God is going to, can remake you. He can remake this whole thing into a new thing. See, what we see in this passage is this passage calls out, man, these people needed a priest. They needed someone to represent them. Now, that sounds odd in our society. We are such a, um, everybody gets a vote. Everybody is the same. Everybody should be able to speak on their own behalf. But that's not actually how our society works. We live in a society where you constantly hire people to represent you. You buy a house, you hire a realtor. Uh, You want to um, execute a contract, you get an agent. We we use attorneys and go-betweens and representatives all the time. That's why we have agents for all kinds of things. Um, We need representation. Someone who stands for us. Someone who represents us. Someone who has got their foot in our life and in another world for us. And human beings, like us, we are people who are in a fallen world and we are fallen people. And we need someone who can represent us. Someone, uh, because we're going to mess it up. We're going to fail. We're not going to get it right. And Someone who can, verse 3, stand in the presence of the holy, stand in the sanctified place, and yet can stand in the common place too. Can stand with us. See, this, this whole passage raises a question uh, that the Old Testament can't answer. is how can there be one who is human who stands in God's presence on my behalf? And it doesn't really answer it. It doesn't really answer. So notice, though, what's funny about this is the narrator and also God in this passage don't seem particularly surprised. The way that this story reads, it is told in a very straightforward, unemotional way. I mean, when you read in, what is it, verse, uh, verse uh, 7, about where go get the remaining son, go get... Aaron and his remaining sons, I mean, his surviving sons. Can you hear that? I mean, just like, doesn't something in you go like, oh. And yet, like, there's nothing in here that makes it sound like this was a surprise that it wasn't going to work. You know, they're, they're killed, their bodies are hauled away, and yet this is the surprise, the surprise ending, where God's like, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. What? Look at verse 8. 
Moses here gives some further instructions, but he doesn't fire Aaron. Uh, he doesn't fire his sons. In fact, he, he's talking about the future. He's like, this is going to be a lasting ordinance. Here's what you're going to do in the future. And it's like, cue needle scratch sound. You know, like, what? You, you can almost hear him go like, Aaron go, whoa, 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 whoa. My boys are dead. We messed up. I'm not put on desk, desk job duty for a while, or I'm not digging ditches, or I'm not I'm put on leave without pay. I'm, I'm not fired. Like, we're just going to keep going? This is what I love about this passage. Look, see, they start the reordering with the creation. They completely mess it up, and yet God isn't done with them. God is not even done with them. Um, it's almost like, here's the subtext. Here's the Jeff Bradford paraphrase of this. Like, hey, we got a whole tribe full of guys with beards. Put a robe on one of them and bring them in. Because we're going to keep, keep, you know, put a robe on Daryl and Daryl. Like, come on, bring those guys in. We're just going to keep going. I mean, Nadab and Abihu, yeah, young men in fire. What did you expect? Right? Like, they're, yeah, those guys were idiots but young men and explosives. What did you think was going to happen? Keep calm and carry on. I mean, do you get how strange this is? I mean, why is that? It's not like God's holiness was working there for a while, and now it's on vacation, right? It's not a part-time status. Uh, it's not that none of this matters. They handle the plutonium with bare hands. Yes, Daryl and Daryl messed this up. And even though it's a failure, how can God say, keep calm and carry on? Keep on See, what's going on? See, this is a head-scratcher passage for the Jews. And it's sort of like, wait, we have this priestly manual. It doesn't work, but we keep going. But if, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you understand why this keeps going. Because this passage tells us about the need for another priest. It tells us there's an, another one that... The priesthood was never meant to be anything more than a shadow. Remember, we've been talking about typology. We've been talking about how the Bible works in these patterns and that there was an original priest and his name was Adam. Let me go back. Here we go. There's Adam. He fails. And then there's one. Then there's this priesthood, which is also a failure. And then there's us, priesthood of all believers. We talked about last week, also a failure. But all of these are just types and shadows of the one high priest that all of us need. You know, if you study our criminal justice system in this country, it, it's an interesting study. We, we live in a country that has a better than most just criminal justice system that tries to make things kind of a level playing field. We know you know you are as good as your attorney. You know, if, if you can hire, if you can afford to hire like the top-notch attorney, there are people who can get you off for all kinds of things if you can pay enough. And, and if you try to represent yourself or you get a pretty lousy um, public appointed, or, you know, a court-appointed defense attorney, you're sunk. You know, it all depends on the quality of representation that you have. The people of God, here's the thing. God provides the best representation for us. 
I'm just going to read some verses out of Hebrews. And I don't normally do this, but I want you to hear about the priest that God provides. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise and not be designated according to the Aaron, uh, to the order of Aaron? But we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So therefore, let's hold fast our confession, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. For since he himself was tempted in all that he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Therefore he has made, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He doesn't need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Therefore, he is always able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Man, the priest that we need is more than provided for in Jesus our great high priest. I mean, we have nothing that we can, we can't pay for this kind of representation. And yet God has provided this for us. And and I want to say this to you. I want you to hear this. If you hear nothing else this morning, you walk into this kind of a place. And if you show up here and you feel like a failure and a fraud and a phony, if you feel like, man, I look around this room and I just, these people, I'm not like these people. I, I can't be the good Christian like these people. You know what? God has provided for you such a covering. God has provided for you such a priest who stands forever in the presence of God and says, this one, this one is mine. You know, I want to encourage you, if you are not a believer, this is what makes you a Christian. Not your performance, I mean, you can look at your week, and I can look at mine. And neither of us, I mean, we, we both look like Nadab and Abihu. And yet God's, God's mercy is for people like us. I mean, it was a failed venture from the beginning. And, and look, if you are a, a, a Christian, and you, you're like, you look at this week, and you're like, I am such a failed priest. I mean, how much did I pray this week? How much did I read the Bible? How much did I even think about God this week? How much did I, did I even share the gospel with anybody? No. Did I, did, I, did I show compassion to someone else at work? Do I care enough to ask someone to forgive me? You know, all these things. Look, you have a faithful high priest who pleads on your behalf for failed priests like us. This is, the, this is why this is part B from last week. Like, you can't be, do it. We cannot succeed where they failed. And yet... The grace of God is forever opened, an a, a overwhelming 
waterfall of grace and mercy to people like us to come in and to be part of God's family. There's a band called Over the Rhine that has a song that captures this. And I'm going to close with this. He says, um, the words go like this. She sings, all my favorite people are broken. Believe me, my heart should know. Some prayers are better left unspoken. I just want to hold you and let the rest go. All my friends are part saint and part sinner. We lean on each other, try to rise above. We're not afraid to admit we're all still beginners. We're all late bloomers when it comes to love. All my favorite people are broken. Believe me, my heart should know. Awful believers, skeptical dreamers, step forward. You can stay right here. You don't have to go. You can stay right here. You don't have to go. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.